this to the side just a little bit. Hello, everyone. Good to be with you. The uh, 107, I think, I took down here, and that's a little dicey up above the hills and over Baldpate Mountain and over the shoulder. But I made it, and it's great to be here. I think this is my first, yeah, this is definitely my first time in this building, but of course I've had the opportunity to uh, spend a little bit of fellowship with your pastor. He's a fine, fine man, and I'm sure there's great things in store, and you're enjoying his ministry here. Well, for our Old Covenant sermon text, I would direct your attention uh, to God's Word in Genesis chapter 3. This, of course, is the account of the fall of the first man, Adam, into sin and the subsequent plunge of all mankind in connection with him, in connection with that act. Genesis chapter 3, and we begin our reading in verse 1. Hear this word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you eat it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We'll end our Old Covenant reading there. And now for our sermon text, we turn our attention to Matthew's Gospel, the fourth chapter. Matthew chapter 4, and we begin our reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, 
For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Well, thus far this reading of God's holy word. Let us pray for His blessing upon it. O gracious Heavenly Father, we desire to have our eyes open that we may behold wondrous things out of Your law. As the psalmist posed the question, how can a young man cleanse his way and keep it pure? The answer is by guarding it according to Your Word. So we would pray as You are the only pure, bright source of light, as You are the eternal God of of truth and awe that is right and holy. We pray that by Your Spirit, uh, You would dwell in us, and by Your Spirit, we would dwell in You. That You would pour out upon us the, the quiet purity to hear and the calm purity to understand and the strong purity to act according to Your most holy Word. Oh, Heavenly Father, this we pray. In the all-prevailing name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, have you ever wondered to yourself as you face this new year ahead of you, if only I prayed more consistently, if only I read my Bible every day, which are good things to do, by the way. In a word, if if I were just more faithful as a Christian, then certainly God would would protect me. But let's not stop there. Let's suspend reality for a moment and dream big. What if it were the case that your faith never fluctuated, that you were one who always did what was right, never did what was wrong, you never thought any wrong thing, you always did the wisest possible decision, then certainly everything would go wonderfully for you in this new year. Things would go perfectly and as you live life pleasing to God. Is that the way it goes? No, it isn't the way it goes. For you encounter in this text one person who did do the right thing, whose faith never fluctuated, who lived a life perfectly pleasing to his Father in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ. God proclaims his love for him from heaven. He pours out his spirit to anoint him in the bodily form of a dove as it descends upon the Lord Jesus. And then he is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. So the very first word of this text is very instructive. It is the word then that I'm preaching to you right now is very significant because it is linking what we just read in Matthew's Gospel to what has occurred just before, namely Jesus' baptism. In Jesus' baptism, he has heard this, these words of the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And what is that then saying to you? It is saying that no one, no human being that has ever walked this earth, including the sinless Son of God, will be free from temptation in this life. Not one. So don't think it odd or strange that you're tempted. 
Don't think that it's weird that you are tempted to do the things that you are. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, no temptation, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. No matter how weird you think your temptations are, Paul says there are many, many, many others who struggle in that same way. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Look at Job, a righteous man, yet he was tempted. And then his friends come along and make the mistake so often made in our modern culture today, the mistake that says your life will go perfectly well as long as you make all the right choices. If things are not going perfectly in your life, you must have made a wrong choice at some point. God mustn't be pleased with you. He must be angry with you. For if you did the right thing, everything would be going perfectly. But Matthew is saying, hold the train. Wait. Wait a second. Because here in this text, we have someone, again, who did live a good life, a perfect life for that matter. Never thought a sinful thought in his life. Always did what was perfectly pleasing to God. Always, every second. Yet look at what has happened in his life. Right after his baptism, as a matter of fact, hunger, thirst, weakness, and yes, temptation. Now, a question arises at this point for this very first verse of the text says that Jesus was led by the Spirit, and that raises some questions. Does God tempt Jesus in this text? And if that's the case, does God tempt you? And the answer to both those questions has to be in bold underlying caps. No, he does not. Absolutely not. For to tempt is to solicit one to sin. And James is very clear. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted of God, for God tempts no one. To tempt is to solicit to do evil. God does not do that. No, the text even states that it is the devil who is the tempter. But at the same time, we need to emphasize the fact that Everything that occurs in our world, including temptation, is nevertheless under the sovereign control of God. The devil, though he is the tempter in this text, is nevertheless subordinate to God and can only do as God allows and permits him to do. Now, you see this very clearly in the life of Job. Uh, the devil goes up to heaven to ask God permission to torment Job. Let's see it very clearly there. But it is very important to draw this distinction at the outset. It is Satan who tempts. God tests. He tests by allowing Satan to tempt you for your good so that you learn to trust in his power as it refines your faith as you see Christ's sufficiency more and more in your life. And of course, you see this in the Apostle Paul, who has the thorn in his flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet him. And that's 
you read about in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, but the God-intended outcome of that is clearly stated in the text is for Paul to know the sufficiency of Christ in his own personal weakness. God will never tempt you toward evil. He does test you. He permits you to be tempted by Satan as he even did with his own son in the wilderness. And for you, it's in order to make you stronger in your fight against sin. Enter now Jesus' temptation here in Matthew 4. Uh, uh, Can God be tempted? No. Is Jesus God? Yes. Can Jesus be tempted? Yes, because Jesus is also fully man. And as man, he can be tempted. As man, he has weaknesses. He has hunger. And fulfilling that hunger would give him temporal pleasure just like any other human being. And it's very interesting here that as man, he's tempted in an incredible situation when his flesh would be at its weakest, namely, in the wilderness here, after having fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And verse 3 says he was hungry. (laughs) And then, here's another big then. Then the tempter comes. Surprise, surprise. He chose that time. Jesus has eaten nothing for 40 days. Not even locusts, not even wild honey. Nothing. He would be the perfect victim for Satan, or so Satan thought, for this is the eternal Son of God. But if Jesus is fully God, then how can his victory over temptation be any help to you today? I mean, after all, he's strong. You're weak. I'm weak. He's sinless. You're sinful. I'm sinful. These things are true. Well, the answer to that question is twofold. First of all, Jesus here is providing you as an example of how to overcome sin. But he also provides you the actual basis, the basis for overcoming sin as well. To deal with the example, you see that the most powerful, the most, the the key weapon in your arsenal to battle against Satan's temptations is what? It is the word of, of the living God. It is the Bible. Notice here he counters each one of Satan's temptations with the words, it is written. You fight against temptation by clinging to the promises of Almighty God in faith. And we're going to see this as we work through the passage. But you see an error enters uh, into the picture here if one is tempted to see Jesus as only an example, only a moral example. Jesus is not simply providing you with an example in overcoming temptation. No, far more. He's actually providing the actual basis for your ability, your enablement to overcome temptation. He has, he has overcome temptation in your behalf. You're going to see this. Let me put it another way. Jesus is the new Adam. Where the first Adam has failed, leading the human race into sin and death, Where that Adam has failed, Jesus as the new man, the new Adam, Paul calls him the second Adam, he succeeds. He lives the perfect life. 
that Adam did not, making him the perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross as well. Now, this is, of course, why I had us read Genesis 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, or 1 through 7, rather, in our Old Covenant reading, because Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is revisiting the test that Adam faced in the Garden of Eden. It's not simply a coincidence that both the test to Adam and Jesus were temptations to eat food outside of the will of God. Both of them were. Now, the differences are striking there. For Adam and Eve had access to pretty much all the food in the Garden of Eden except for that one tree. Jesus, however, enters into his temptation, his test, not having eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, however, passes the test. So whose righteousness do you want? Adam's? No, you want Jesus' righteousness. But you see, Jesus' test in the wilderness is also a recapping of Israel's test in the wilderness. And if anything, some of the parallels are even more striking. Notice how Satan begins the first two of his temptations. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, he's bringing Jesus' sonship into question. But remember, if you think back to Matthew 2, and I'm sure you've read Matthew 2, hopefully recently during the Advent season, you notice that Matthew makes this link between Israel the Son and Jesus the Son. Out of Egypt I have called my son. He quotes Hosea. In the original context, that was referring to Israel being rescued out of the the clutches of its Egyptian bondage, of her Egyptian bondage. Whereas with Jesus, it was Jesus coming out of Egypt after the Herodian persecution. Yet Matthew could say, thus it was fulfilled as the prophet said, because Israel is a type of Jesus, the anti-type. Jesus is the son par excellence. He is the Israel par excellence. And Matthew wants you to see that connection. But think also of the parallels, even in this text before us, as Jesus' temptation lasts for 40 days, Israel's lasted another 40, 40 years. Israel's deliverance is uh, takes place after its deliverance through the Red Sea, or upon being delivered through the Red Sea. What does Paul call that in First Corinthians ten? He calls it Israel's baptism. Israel's baptism. Well, likewise, and then they enter their wilderness testing. Likewise, with Jesus, his wilderness testing was preceded by his baptism in the Jordan River. It's also very significant that each time Jesus wards off Satan's temptations with a scripture, what does he quote? He quotes the book of Deuteronomy each and every time. Three times he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, which is a book written uh, during the time of Israel's wilderness wanderings. So it's very striking here. Jesus is the new man... Jesus is the new Israel, where both of them failed their their test, Jesus succeeds. And thus, you who are in union with Christ through faith 
You are called the new creature in Christ. You are called the new man in Christ. You are called the Israel of God in Galatians. What Christ has done becomes the basis for your own victory. Now, the world might try to tell you as you go into 2022 that all the the bad stuff going on is they psychologize it. They like to say, well, it's bad decisions or societal environment. But you see, the Bible beyond that speaks of the existence of a real devil, a real devil. The world doesn't. The Bible does. The Bible speaks of the real existence of sin and sin nature and corruption of original sin. But this text is ensuring you, giving you the confidence that you can overcome temptation. And it gives you three reasons why. And these are the the three points of my sermon today, which I'll, I'll give them to you now. It's because Jesus is the new man, the new Israel, has conquered one, self-gratification. Two, he has conquered self-protection. And three, he has conquered self-exaltation. Self-gratification, self-protection, self-exaltation. Let us dig into those. How is it you can overcome temptation? First, because Jesus, the new man, the new Israel, has overcome self-gratification. And I want you to look at verse 1. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now that has to be one of the biggest examples of understatement in the Bible I know of. If I fast for 40 minutes, I'm hungry. 40 days and 40 nights, whoa, forget it. And so you see, this is the very essence of Satan's temptation, to attack the sonship of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, Satan's chief tactic, his ploy, is to try to shake Jesus' confidence in his sonship, his relationship that he sustains with his heavenly Father. God had just told him, you are my Beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now Satan is aiming his guns right at that. Right on the very spot. Jesus' sonship. He wants to shake Jesus' certainty and his comfort of his father's love. And so the devil says here, well, if you're the son of God, prove it. If the father really loves you, prove it. And you know something? This is the same attack he makes on you. He wants to shake your confidence in your adopted sonship as children of God. He doesn't want you to know that joy, that assurance of God's unconditional love. And he tempts you to move away from that. He doesn't want you to believe Jesus as the Son of God. He doesn't want you to take comfort in your union with Jesus, the power that you have as Jesus indwells you by his Spirit. Look at verse 3. Now, the tempter comes to Jesus and he says, if you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan's basically saying, if you're really the son of God, then why are you out here starving? It doesn't seem like the son of God to me. It, It really doesn't seem like your heavenly father is providing for your lawful needs here. Why don't you provide for yourself? Now, I'm willing to guess that none of you were 
tempted to turn stones into bread, unless you were very, very hungry, maybe. However, you all have been tempted to seek to satisfy your desires outside of the will of God. All of you. God has designed you to have certain desires that are good. Eating, for example. I mean, isn't that what's so striking about the temptation in the the garden? Satan's basic ploy in the garden is to persuade Adam and Eve that God is holding back something good from you. There's something really good. He doesn't want you to have it. You should have it. And so they both decide to fulfill their desires outside of the will of God. But also, this was the case with Israel as well. As I mentioned before, uh, the passage Jesus quotes in response to Satan's first temptation here is taken from the wilderness wanderings, but here it's specifically Deuteronomy 8.3. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But it's very telling (laughs) to read that text in context with the verse that occurred just before it in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, verse 2. Let me read it for you. Very illuminating. It says there, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's illuminating. This is a test. God was testing Israel to see whether they would trust in his provision that he would satisfy their needs in accordance with his word and his will. You know, we all have desires. You all have desires. I have desires that are innately God-given. But Satan's activity is really focused on this level of your desires. You know, so you desire food. Uh, that's good. But Satan tempts you with gluttony. You desire sex. That's good within the context of marriage. But Satan tempts you with fornication and adultery. You desire sleep. That's good. But Satan tempts you with laziness. Now, those are different temptations in one sense, but in another sense, they're quite similar, for they're all saying that God is not satisfying my desires in the way I want, so I will seek to satisfy them myself and in my own way, apart from his will. That's how uh, Satan is tempting Jesus here. That's how he will often tempt you. Now, it's quite deadly how Satan attacks here, is it not? Satan is persuaded that you're just defined by your sinful desire. You're just a reeking blob of carnality. That's Satan's view of you. But if you're a child of God, is sin what defines you? No. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He has defeated temptation already. Righteousness is what defines you as new creatures in Christ. He has paid the price for all your failed attempts at overcoming temptation. But what's more, as you are in union with him, this 
indwelling Christ is, is empowering you and recreating his image in you to overcome temptation. And that's, that's very important because I'm going to make a prediction about you all in 2022. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I'm going to make a, a prediction. It's that in this coming year, you will be tempted to satisfy your desires outside of the will of God. Not just in the next 40 days, but in the next 40 weeks, next 40 months, if God has you on the planet that long 40 years, you can count on it. And you must overcome it. You must overcome temptation. You must mortify. How? Well, you do what Jesus does here. How does he answer Satan in verse 4? He answers and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's basically saying this, that Jesus trusts God to fulfill his desires in harmony with his word. And that's what you should do as well. Trust God that he will fulfill your desires in harmony with his word. The scriptures... Adam and Eve seek to fulfill them contrary to God's will. And when they saw the horror of what they had done, they realized that what they thought led to pleasure led to destruction. And Jacob, uh, uh, rather Esau, the same way. He sells his birthright for a pot of soup. Judas sold his master for 30 pieces of silver. The temptation of demons promises all types of rewards and pleasures, but only leads to destruction. No, it is the will of God as recorded in the pages of Scripture. That's the only thing that will truly satisfy you. Man's true bread and Jesus' victory over self-gratification is yours too. Now we come to the second point here, though. You can also overcome temptation because Jesus, as the new man, as the new Adam, as the new Israel, has also conquered self-protection. Look at verse 5. So then the devil takes Jesus up into the holy city. Okay, he sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge according uh, over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So now we have Satan quoting Scripture to Jesus Christ, the living Son of God. It's very interesting. Now, what passage is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 91. Very particularly, he's quoting verses 11 and 12 from that psalm. But it is very telling that he stopped there. For do you know what the very next verse in that psalm says, verse 13? It says, You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion... And the serpent you shall trample underfoot. And perhaps you can gather why Satan wouldn't want to bring that verse up at this particular point in time. 
to Jesus. Perhaps this temptation is very difficult for you to understand what's so tempting about jumping off of a tower. But you, want, you need to see this is no ordinary tower. This is the pinnacle of the temple, which has been the visible monument of the, the presence of the living God for all the, the, the saints of the Old Covenant through the Mosaic era to that present time. So the devil is, is really tempting Jesus once again to show evidence that God will be faithful to protect his son. Jesus replies here, he quotes Deuteronomy again, this time chapter 6, verse 16. It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massah. What happened in Massah? (laughs) It is recorded for you in Exodus 17. It is basically when the Israelites grumbled to God for water, saying, is the Lord with us or not? (laughs) You see, they showed that they were not trusting in God's provision in that text. And how can you do this today? You and I can do this today basically whenever we put God's protection into question, put his provision into question. Is God with me or not? Or uh, obviously twisting God's promises as, as Satan did and turning them into a test of, of God's character, like putting God to the test, manufacturing a situation in which God is forced or coerced to, to help us. Now, t- today people uh, can put God to the test. They don't like what God is doing in their lives. When something goes wrong, are you with me or not? But Jesus here What does Jesus do? He takes refuge in the character of God, the character of his Father. The character of the Father, his goodness, his benevolence, that's good enough for Jesus. I don't need to put the Father to the test. I know his character. That's good enough for me. I have two sons. I love them to pieces. I love being around them. I love doing things with them, reading with them, going places with them, making sure their needs are met. Their names are John and James. But, you know what Jesus calls me as a father, though? Evil. In Luke eleven thirteen, he says to his disciples, to his disciples, he says, If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. (laughs) But then he goes on to say, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And here's the bottom line for this second point. Please listen very carefully. That when Satan tempted the Son the son reflected upon, again, what the scriptures said about his father in heaven and what he knew of his father in heaven. And you should reflect on the gracious character of your God in times of trial and temptation, just as Jesus did, rather than putting him to the test. But now we come to our third and last 
overwhelming reason you can overcome temptation. And this is because Jesus as the new man, as the new Adam, the new Israel, has conquered self-exaltation. And for this, we look at verse 8. Again, the devil takes Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the devil says to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus knows already that all these things will be given to him. So why would this be such a temptation for Jesus? Well, for the simple reason is that Jesus knows that the road leading to the receiving of all these things is a road filled with hardship, privation, suffering, rejection, persecution, and yes, culminating in a brutal death on the cross. So the temptation here of Satan is for Jesus to seize the cross apart from the crown. He is tempting Jesus to walk a bloodless path to glory. You want these kingdoms? I'll give them to you now. Just bow down and worship me, and you get them now. So it's a bloodless path to glory. He's basically saying, if you're a son, why are you groveling like a servant like this? Just take the kingdom now. And that temptation also is something that is a real temptation for you and me in this fallen world. You think of the power, you think of the prestige, possessions, have them now, have them now. It's what, he, it's what Satan said to Adam and Eve. You'll be like God. Take the fruit now. Take it now. You're falling into this temptation whenever you steal glory from God that is due him, uh, and you take that glory for yourselves trying to get rather ahead in the world, concentrating on what you want above what God wants is due. Or, what if there is the opportunity to serve and you quickly see that that road to service is going to be one of sacrifice, time, perhaps suffering, and you think, oh, no, I want a quick fix I want quick results. Being in something for the long haul and the suffering, I can do without that. But no, how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy again, of course. We know that now. But a different verse. He says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God in him only. You shall serve. Jesus knew from Scripture that the highest calling of anyone is the worship of the living God and serving Him. He knows that whoever humbles himself in the service of God will be exalted in due time. God promises it. He puts His word on that. Your response should be as Jesus' response had been. But you don't want to miss how the narrative ends in verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. That is to say, these temptations were tough, 
but they were temporary. And yours will be temporary as well. God will provide a way out of it. That's a promise. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, this would not be the first time that the devil challenged Jesus' sonship. No, there would be another time. He would keep working on Jesus. Until we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, Satan calls Jesus' sonship into question one more time. If you are the Son of God, come down. Jesus could have summoned legions of angels at that moment. But he resisted that temptation. And he did it for you. He did it for you so that he would be perfectly qualified as the bloody sacrifice for your sin. Shed his blood to cover all the thousands of times you and I have failed to overcome temptation in our lives. That's the basis. That's the basis. The new man, the new Adam, the new Israel provides that basis. But, of course, he, you still must fight. You still have to fight against temptation, right? So he also provides you a pattern here to follow as well. Have you ever noticed what is so interesting about Satan's tactic in getting at Jesus? You know, I think it's because we're so soaked in the Marvel Universe and Avengers and these powerful beings shooting at one another, repulsor blasts and hammers that even Hulk can't pick up and throwing the Captain America shield and Doctor Strange mystical supernatural blasts. We're so kind of infiltrated with that sort of thinking. But, but then you, you maybe expect that Jesus and Satan would do the same thing. I mean, after all, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Satan is the most powerful evil creature that has ever existed. I mean, this is... And they're facing off here. Do they use blasts? Do they use lasers against one another? No, so they use something far more powerful. (laughs) The Word of God. Jesus uses the Word of God. Satan even uses the Word of God, but seeks to twist it and knows he needs to shake Jesus' hold on the Word of God and the promises of God. He wants Jesus to doubt God's Word. That was his same tactic in the Garden of Eden. Yea, hath God said, the moment he can shake your confidence, your hold on the Word of God, he has you. And that's why in this text, every attack of the wicked one is met with a scriptural response by your Lord Jesus Christ. The devil wants to break your hold on God's truth. He knows that your heart is not only where your beliefs are, your heart is where your desires are, your affections, your priorities, what you think is important. If you can get that, he's got you. And this is why Jesus grounds his response in the truth of God's holy word. Think of it this way. Perhaps you're going through a gruesome experience, the extremities of human anguish and suffering, and you know it's very telling 
what speaks volumes about a person is what comes out of their mouth during those times. And that's very humbling, frankly. (laughs) What was the darkest time for Jesus? I think you would agree with me that is when Jesus experienced separation from the Father and hung from the cross on Calvary. But what were the words that came out of Jesus' mouth in that darkest of dark times? With the words of Scripture, the words of the Psalms in particular. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All the seven words are from the Scripture, from the Psalms. The psalmist said, it was mentioned in the congregational prayer, mentioned in my prayer of illumination, I'll bring it up again. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. <laughs> powerful, powerful truth there. Because when you have God's promises, his commands, the revelations of his grace, the threatenings, the, the comforts, boy, when you have those stored in your heart, you're a very hard target for Satan. You won't get a foothold there. But now think of it this way. If Jesus, who is the sinless Son of God, did not dare undertake warfare with Satan without a firm storing away in his heart the Word of God, then who are you, who am I to think that we could do anything else but the same? The Word of God stored in our heart necessary food to give Scripture answers to Satan's attacks every, every, every time. But I want you to listen. The main, the main thrust that I want you to take away from this passage of Scripture tonight, listen carefully, is that you not only have the Word of God to fight against temptation, you have the God of the Word You have Jesus himself helping you. Hebrews 4.16 states, he's been tempted in every way as you are so he can sympathize with your weaknesses and give you mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. And he does by sending you his Holy Spirit Yes, the same Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness, but the same Spirit that also led him out of the wilderness and got him through it as well. He's there to help you, the same Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' temptation is so intense, it's beyond comprehension. (laughs) But he did it for you. And that's with the knowledge of the sympathy that he has for you, the victory that he has accomplished for you, his blood covering all your sins like an ocean, the Spirit working in you, the Word of God, his own Word-centered example, all these things coalesce so that you can overcome temptation as well. Let us pray. O gracious Heavenly Father, We do thank you for our Lord Jesus as the second man, the 
greater Israel par excellence, the son of Abraham, son of David, the beloved son. Oh, Lord, how we do look to him. We thank you for what he has accomplished in successfully overcoming his temptation, being the perfect sacrifice for us on the cross, that he might empower us to do the same by his spirit, that he might give us a holy, righteous status before you, that he might even provide his own word-centered example in the practical realm of daily warring against sin and temptation. Oh, Lord, how we do thank you for the all-sufficiency of Christ as presented in, the, in this passage. And yes, we do pray that you would help us to overcome temptation in this new year, but not only in this new year, but for all time. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.